have a Bible. There are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you get their attention, they'll get one into your hands so you can read along with us as well as uh, listening uh, to the teaching of the word this morning. Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, we come now very, very close uh, to the cross in that study. Matthew chapter 26, one verse first, and then we'll jump down. Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 36, and then Jesus came with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face. And he prayed, O oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And a second time he went away and he prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, no one, whatever their education, whatever their abilities, can take all that is on this page as your Holy Spirit's record of this event and do them justice. We require a ministry, a teaching, and a witness of your Holy Spirit to give us understanding of just what happened there in Gethsemane, Lord, and what it has to do with us. And so we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in this room this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. These events took place very late in the evening on the night before Jesus was crucified. Probably sometime beginning at 10 or 11 at night, uh, carrying all the way until the sun began to dawn the following morning. After singing a hymn, we're told in verse 30, Jesus and the disciples then made their way out of Jerusalem. They crossed the Kidron Valley, a small valley that then leads on the eastern side of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And as they made their way to that place, having left Jerusalem, we're told that 
they sang a hymn together. The Lord was into worship and probably sang one of the Hillel Psalms, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They were known as the Hillel Psalms or the Psalms, great Psalms of praise to the Lord. And they were always sung by Jews during the three great Jewish religious feasts of their uh, religious calendar, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're right up against now the Feast of Passover. Jesus is going to be crucified as a part of that feast. I'll tell you, it'd be something to have a recording of Jesus and the disciples singing that hymn or that psalm together. The place that they came to on the Mount of Olives Verse 36 is a place called Gethsemane. It's a special place for a lot of reasons. Luke's gospel tells us that it was a place that was familiar to Jesus and the disciples. It seems as if they came there often. Luke tells us that he and the disciples were accustomed to come there. So apparently it was a favorite place of Jesus and the disciples just for some peace and quiet. A place to meditate and a place to pray and a place to seek God. Jerusalem was not that place for Jesus and the disciples. But the Garden of Gethsemane was that place. And I think it's wonderful to have a familiar place, a favorite place to meet with God in the middle of all of the difficulties and the trials and the challenges and the opposition of life. And Gethsemane was that place for Jesus and the disciples. Always on a trip to Israel, we go to Gethsemane. It's not just where the church has been built. It's an entire area of the Mount of Olives. And to look out on that area and to realize this is a place of that we are, that was a place of special communion between the Son of God and God the Father and between the Son of God and the disciples, the God of heaven. Gethsemane was more than a familiar spot to Jesus and the disciples. There's no place really in all of Israel that could have been a more appropriate site for the events that were going to occur that evening, crushing events. And the reason is, is the name Gethsemane means olive press. And the Mount of Olives in those days, hence its name, was covered by olive trees. Not so much so anymore, but in the area of Gethsemane, there are still a great number of olive trees in that region. And some of the olive trees are estimated to date back as many as 1,800 years. Gethsemane was probably an enclosed uh, a garden of olive trees in the middle of it would be an olive press, a great gigantic stone trough where they would take great round stones that had been fashioned into wheels that maybe oxen or men would then roll around over the olives in order to crush the olives that the oil would then drip down into the openings at the base of the trough and then fill the receptacles that were below to catch the olive oil. And the pressing of that, that great pressing that would occur in Gethsemane 
was in order to get the oil that required a great weight, a great crushing in order to produce the oil. And thus Gethsemane was a place that was synonymous with great pressing, great pressure, crushing kind of pressure. And as they entered the garden, Jesus told eight of the disciples to sit here while I go over and pray, he said in verse 36. And then in verse 37, he took Peter, James and John and he went even further, deep, more deep into the garden of Gethsemane. And as the four are walking, Jesus and James, Peter and John were told in verse 37 that Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he stops, verse 38, James and Peter and John, and he asks them to stay where they were and to watch with him. He's entering into a very difficult time in his life. And somehow he wants the presence of his disciples there as an encouragement to him. But then he goes a little further into the garden himself. Because what has to happen in that garden, those disciples can't enter into prayer with him. Those disciples, there's nothing they can do for him uh, it, by being right in his presence. Everything that has to happen there now has to be done alone between him and the Father. No one else could su share in his suffering. No one else could share in his prayer. So he goes alone. And we notice in verses 37 and 38, Jesus's agony and the Garden of Gethsemane, the condition of his soul. And here you have the Holy Spirit. I don't know how successfully, as successfully as can be. But you have the Holy Spirit here. I mean, the infinite, perfect, all powerful, all wise Greatest vocabulary, Holy Spirit, trying to put in human language. And it's like he ransacks the universe for every word that can be found to somehow drive home the point of the emotion and the physical crushing that Jesus was going through in that garden of Gethsemane, not so that any of us would ever fully understand it. None of us can ever fully understand it, but not now, not in eternity, I'm sure. But to give us but a glimpse of what he went through in that garden. And it wasn't a physical suffering that would occur in just a few hours that is the picture of suffering that the Holy Spirit paints here. This is an internal suffering. Verse 37, Jesus was sorrowful. And the word means to be encircled by sorrow in all directions, no relief. He was, verse 37, deeply distressed. Thayer translates it as being to be uncomfortable not at home, to be troubled, to be distressed. Jesus said in verse 38, he declared, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. His sorrow was so great that it pushed him to a place where he felt he was at the very limit of his endurance. 
All God, all man, all at the same time, whatever it is that he is facing, whatever it is that's crushing him in that garden, he feels that he is pushed to the limit of what he can endure. Weiss translates it this way. Then he said to them, my soul is encircled and overwhelmed with grief, so much so that I am very close to dying. In Mark's gospel, chapter 14, verse 33, we're told that he was troubled, which means to be amazed, to be greatly astonished at what he knew was coming the very next day. We're told that he was As he prayed, he was in agony. Luke's gospel tells us that. And the agony was so great, Luke tells us, that his sweat became like great drops of blood. Whatever it is, as you think about in the sense of Gethsemane and the olive press and the great stone upon stone pressing those olives until they were crushed and oil coming out of them. Here is Jesus. Whatever it is that is pressing upon him is having a physical impact upon his body. It's not just mental. The mental is moved over into where it's affecting his body. And his response to it is that sweat begins to come out of his whole body and it begins to fall, not in just little drops, but great thick drops of sweat in the same way that blood drips off of someone who has a wound. The agony is so great, we're told further in Luke's gospel, that an angel was dispatched from heaven to strengthen him. Then that garden of Gethsemane, some tremendous, indescribable pressure was upon Jesus, upon our Jesus, Matthew tells us at this point, verse 39, that Jesus fell on his face to pray. Mark tells us that he fell to the ground. He takes a few steps away from the disciples that he's left there, and then he falls to the ground. Why does he fall to the ground? He's under some great weight. He will fall to the ground because of the physical abuse he will face the next day. As he carries the cross. And someone is then beckoned to help him carry the cross. That's not what's going on here. There is some pressing of of something great, non-physical, something spiritual, something emotional, something deep inside of him that's pressing down so hard on him that it drives him down to his knees. And what was that something? That great something. He refers to it in verse 39 as this cup. Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. It doesn't appear to refer to all of the physical horror of death by crucifixion that awaits him the next day. Because Jesus declared earlier in John's gospel, chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Speaking of the physical consequences that he would bear in his crucifixion. 
Clearly, Jesus did not fear death. This is the very reason he came into the world. Very often in the Old Testament, a cup is spoken, speaks figuratively of God's wrath. A wrath that was poured out on perhaps Jerusalem or the children of Israel as a whole, the wicked there, or upon the wicked of the world as a result of their sin and of their wickedness. Psalm 11 verses 5 and 6. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75 verse 8. For the hand of the, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and the wine is red, it's fully mixed and he pours it out and surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Isaiah chapter 51 verse 17, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Then Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 15, for thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Jeremiah said, take this wine cup of fury from my hand. And cause all of the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. And this cup refers to the fact that far beyond all of the physical horror of the cross that Jesus would endure, what produced This reaction in him in the Garden of Gethsemane was the knowledge that upon that cross he would bear the sins of all of mankind. And in bearing our sins, all of the righteous divine judgment that our sins deserved. Paul put it this way. For he that is the father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin, perfect holiness, to become sin on that cross. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Peter put it this way who himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Paul again to the Galatians, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Speaking of the cross, for he said, it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It was no small thing for the perfect, holy sinless Son of God for Jesus to bear our sins and the full wrath that our sins deserved and do deserve on that cross so that we might be forgiven. Take the perfect holiness of Jesus. Never sinned. 
never knew sin, no contact with sin, nothing about it related to his nature. It would be like taking the most perfect, pure, godly 14 year old. And putting him, introducing him into some kind of house or some kind of room where he would be instantly exposed to the filthiest and the worst and the most graphic and gross sin that has ever been committed in the whole world. And in one instant to see it with his eyes, to feel it process into his spirit and into his mind and into his body and the revulsion that it would produce and what it would do to him as he as this is now introduced into his life. And even that illustration doesn't do justice to the purity of God, who now has all of the sins of mankind, every sin that you've committed Every sin that I've committed, every sin that every single person in history has committed, now put upon him and the judgment and the justice that it deserves put upon him on that cross. That we might be forgiven. It isn't just words in a gospel presentation which we can so easily cease to be awed by. Where we hear over and over and over again that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and by putting your faith in Him, you can receive the forgiveness of sins. Here in Gethsemane, we're given but a glimpse of the terrible price Jesus paid to make that possible way beyond what he endured physically on that cross, long before he was ever crucified on that cross. And it's very humbling to me, and I know to you as well, to realize that my sin was behind Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. My sin was a part of what he went through on that night and produced this prayer and this exchange with the Father. But I tell you, it produces a great love in me and in us for the Lord, great worship as well, I think. He bore our sins on that cross. Notice Jesus' prayer, verse 39. He asked the Father that if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If what is possible, our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus asked, in essence, my Father, if there's any other way by which ungodly sinners can be saved other than by me going to the cross, reveal that way now. And you read through the whole passage. And what is the answer of heaven? What is the answer of the Father? Silence. And then the cross. And the fact that Jesus Christ died on that cross 2,000 years ago is heaven's witness. It is the Father's witness to the fact 
that there is no other way for man to be saved and forgiven apart from faith in Jesus upon that cross for our sins and the salvation that is introduced into the world because of Jesus' sacrifice. And anyone who believes that there's another way or says there's another way not only knows nothing of Calvary and nothing of the Bible, but nothing of Gethsemane. Had there been any other way to save man, it would have been revealed by the Father in answer to this agonizing prayer of Jesus. But there was no other way, so there was no answer. And if someone declares that there is some other way, that all religions are just the different paths to the same end, that person needs to spend some time in Gethsemane with Jesus and listening to Jesus. If there is some other way for man to be saved, the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane doesn't make a bit of sense. There's only one way to be saved. That's through faith. In Christ, the salvation that Jesus has provided for mankind is not found in religion, is not found in church attendance, is not found in good works, it's not found in anywhere except in Him. And three times, God the Son asks God the Father to search heaven and earth again to see if there's some other way by which sinful man could be forgiven and saved. And I'll tell you, is you've got that interaction of Jesus, the Son of God, praying that three times to the Father in the light of what He's going to bear in terms of our sin. Never had happened before, will never happen again in all of eternity. I'll tell you, it's holy ground. What went on inside of Him to produce that prayer three times to the Father. The answer of heaven was silence. And it was strength as God then sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And then notice Jesus' response to that silence. The answer that he knew that the silence was. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he surrendered. And he took that mountain of pain and sacrifice that awaited him the following day, both physical and spiritual. And he put it all on one side of a scale, a mountain of it. And then he dismissed all of it with a nevertheless as the old saying goes, salvation is free, but it isn't cheap. Jesus paid an impossible to describe price so that we might be free, forgiven, and saved. Why would he do it? Love. God demonstrated his love toward us 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Speaking not only of the physical whore of the cross, but of the perfect sinless Lamb of God bearing all of the sins of the world. And finally, notice Jesus' courage there in verses 45 and 46. The end of all of this, the sun begins to rise. The day of his crucifixion arrives. And there being no other way, Jesus then went out to meet his betrayer to begin the darkest day in human history. That's our Savior. That's our Jesus. That's what he was willing to do for you and for I, me. I ask that the worship team come forward right now just to lead us in worship and to give us just a few minutes to meditate in a fresh way upon the greatness of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And as we consider, not in a self-condemning way, but in a way that produces humility in us, gratitude and worship in us, as we just consider the part that our own individual sin played in his agony in that garden. But then to contemplate the greatness of his 